Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them to James. Continuing the series. Uh, I did think about uh, going back and re-preaching the section in James about not knowing what tomorrow holds. Because I thought that has a particular application for us. But I really am grateful for the way God has prepared us for this time and and the different series that we've had. And I want to encourage you to make use of the messages that we have online um, on fear, on the book of Revelation. These are places that we can go to again and again and feed our souls. And if I still have some of the Grace Kids watching, um, I want to encourage you to be listening. We have some coloring sheets that are available for you on the Sunday page right under the live stream section. You can check those out. And I was thinking a little bit about when I was some of your age, I learned a song which kids have been singing for a couple of generations now called if you're happy and you know it which calls little merrymakers to clap their hands to stomp their feet to shout amen or yeehaw depending on which version you know and so i want to encourage you kids at home throughout the day today Be inspired to sing that song as loud as you can. Stomp your feet, clap your hands, shout amen. Sing it over and over and over again. It'll help your parents remember this message. So you have my permission to sing that song happy and loud. Those lyrics that are seared into my brain came to mind when contemplating James's exhortation in chapter 5 of his letter. Because in verse 13, he says, Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. In other words, if you're happy and you know it, sing to God, sing praise. Then after I reflected on it a little bit further, I, I realized that the principle of that simple song has really been James's big idea throughout his entire letter. If we are disciples of Jesus, it's going to be reflected in different ways that are going to show in our lives. It's going to be reflected in faith and in generosity, in our words and in our relationships, in humility and patience. If we are followers of Jesus, then our lives will surely show it. Every section of James's letter has been an appeal to live consistent with the faith we profess. Faith for James is not a private, personal relationship with Jesus, but a call to live our Christ-likeness out loud, to display Jesus as worth it to those who glimpse any part of our lives. So with that in mind, I want to look through that lens at James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. And if we're following along with the song, it, it roughly 
follows the pattern. If you're a Christian and you know it, pray to God. If you're a Christian and you know it, praise him too. Because if you're a Christian and, you're, and you know it, then your prayers will surely show it. And we'll finish the song a little later. Right now, let's read James 5, verses 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. If you are a Christian and you know it, then your prayers will surely show it. James is once again proving to be very straightforward and plain spoken. Are you suffering? Pray. Are you happy? Sing, And with these two exhortations, he really seeks to cover most of the spectrum of our lives. It's James's equivalent of pray without ceasing. There's always occasion to be coming to our God in our sufferings, in our joy. Again and again, we are called to come to him, whatever our circumstance of course, for us, it's often not that straightforward when it comes to our practice. Because, you know, life, hearts, willing spirits, but weak flesh. So when we read these words, we have a choice in how we respond to them. We need to decide first how we're going to perceive what is being exhorted to us. Do we see, when we come across these words, a burden of obligation? Another area where we're not going to measure up. Does guilt quickly start creeping in? The reality is I don't know anyone who has ever confessed that they've prayed too much. Instead, most of us instinctively think, I'm not doing enough, and God is probably disappointed in me. And it can lead us to despair. Why even bother trying? 
I want to encourage us to see these verses this morning in a different light. Is it possible that we can see these verses as an invitation? A loving Heavenly Father who bids us to come and to relate with Him. The Son who has been so committed to our ability to approach the throne that He laid down His life for us to be able to do so. Through the eyes of the Spirit who dwells within us and gives voice to our requests even when we don't have the words. Do we see that God is for us? That he has promised to never leave or forsake us? Do we focus on our shortcomings? Or do we focus on the sufficiency of our self-giving God? How should we as Christians approach prayer? Alec Matir writes, Calvin puts it well when he comments that James means there is no time in which God does not invite us to himself. We have a God for all seasons, both in periods of suffering and trouble in times and in times of joy, prayer and praise alike acknowledge that he is all-sufficient. To pray to him is to acknowledge his sovereign power to meet our needs. That's why we pray, because we believe he is able to do something about our needs. And to praise him is to acknowledge his sovereign power in appointing our circumstances. We respond with gratitude and praise because we recognize what we enjoy is from his good hand. So whether as the source of supply in need or the source of gladness of our joy, God is our sufficiency. So friends, do we make use of his arms wide open invitation to us? Do we run to him in our sorrows? Or are we prone to forget about him in our joys? Do we run from him in our shame? Or complain about him in our troubles? God wants us to draw near to him in all things at all times. Prayer is not held out to us as lifeless duty or an item to be checked off of our list. It's a call to relationship in sickness and in health, richer and poorer, working and sabbatical and furlough and joblessness, kids at home and kids at school. Every circumstance is a call by God to draw near to him. Now, some are really struggling right now in the season we find ourselves. And some are almost feeling guilty because they're enjoying different aspects of this season and, and they're not sure if it's okay to even be able to say that. Wherever you are, God calls you to draw near to him. 
There is not a situation where you don't have an invitation from God to experience intimacy and closeness with Him. Are you suffering? Oh, you're bid to cry out to Him. He, has He blessed your socks off? Well, then talk to Him about that and express how much you love Him, the giver of all good gifts, and how grateful you are. Have you messed up again? Well, then confess your sins to him because he is faithful and just and will forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. Go to him in your weakness too. He knows your frame and frailty and he has chosen to lavish his love upon you all the same. Friends, we have a great example, a great model of relating with God no matter what our circumstances in the Psalms. Praying and praising and finding God is more than enough through all of it. David's social distancing was because his father-in-law sought for years to have him killed. So he ran away and was on the run. He also had plenty of family drama and strife some of it the result of his own grievous sin. And he also experienced stunning victories and enjoyed many occasions of God's extravagant favor and kindness. But again and again, he related in the midst of it to his God. From on the run to on the throne, we have his recorded prayers and praises from the highest highs to the lowest of lows. Wherever you are, whatever your circumstances, draw near to your God. If you don't know where to start, I encourage you, use David's prayers and praises as a guide. Go to them and pray along with them. Now, James is encouraging for us uh, towards an every occasion, all the time type of prayer life, but that doesn't mean that we can't make plans, schedule some times, take steps to help us to grow. The first I, I would start with, if you're in a place where you're aware, I want to grow in my prayer life, begin by asking God to help you. Even right now, just ask that he would give you a greater desire, that he would help you to make use of the time that you have. It doesn't take a lot to take some steps in growing in our relationship with God in these ways. A couple things that have helped me um, over the years. One is just whenever I'm aware of a request or of a praise, I, I try and pray immediately. Just stop right in that moment to pray or to give thanks. And oftentimes that's only a 15 second interaction. But it, it helps me to not lose that moment. It helps me to be faithful. If I'm saying I'm going to pray for someone, I, I want to do it. Um, if I'm with them, I'll pray with them or I'll pray with them on the phone. I won't wait and leave it up to my mind to remember some other time. Um, I want to do that. And then those things that I'm promising to pray for, because I want to write down. I want to have a list so that um, I can be faithful to follow up. 
And if you don't currently pray outside of meals or tucking the kids into bed, I would encourage you to do something like set a reminder a couple times a day, even if it's just for two or three minutes at a time. I would encourage you to write a list to help you to be able to focus because prayer can be this kind of nebulous thing where we just follow our train of thought and we quickly find ourselves out of it at times. I've been there many times. Um, So just writing a list of things that are important to us can be helpful ways to keep us focused. I would encourage you if you do that to include things that you're grateful for that you're giving thanks for. Include an attribute or two of God that you just want to express adoration for. You want to appreciate Him more. And so just to take some moments to dwell on that and to give Him praise for who He has revealed Himself to be. And, and yes, we can pray for needs, but... I also want to encourage us on that list to make sure we're praying for what really matters. Not just temporal things, but what is eternally important. James continues, verse 14, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Some commentators make a case for this situation of calling the elders um, as only being for the most severe cases. Um, They'll make a case that if you are calling for the elders, it means that you can't go to them yourself, which means you're probably bed-bound. That may be, but I want you to understand for our practice here, we don't view being bed-bound as a requirement for you to be able to call on us as elders to come and to pray for you, to pray with you. But we also recognize that this often isn't our first step in our prayer progressions. If for no other reason that for many of us, getting anyone else involved is often a big step because that takes a bit of humbling ourselves and, and sharing where we are in need and asking someone else to come alongside us. And with this case in particular, maybe maybe the oil thing is, is a stumbling block or a hurdle because that just seems weird. I mean, is that something we even do today? Well, I want to share with you our practice. As a church, it's not uncommon for someone to request prayer and for us as elders and often we'll ask a care group to join with us and after a meeting, we'll gather around a person and we will anoint them with just a drop of oil. Not because we think it has any magical powers, but because we want to be obedient. And Scripture has laid this out for us. And because of what we understand the purpose of anointing is, it's not about a drop of oil. 
but it's because in Scripture, anointing is the practice of setting something or someone apart for God's purpose. It's saying, this is yours, God, and so do with them whatever is pleasing to you. Now, that may be a bigger hurdle than a drop of oil, but that's what we're calling ourselves to when we're coming together um, as elders and praying for someone and anointing them. That's our understanding of what we're seeking to do is set this person aside and say, Lord, this is your child. They belong to you. Do what's best in your eyes. We're going to pray and ask for specific things. But you're Lord, and you know what the real needs are. Now, in, in terms of the oil, we don't do this every time we pray for someone, but we do when folks ask us as elders to pray for them and to anoint them. Because we see this as another opportunity to relate with God, to recognize his sufficiency, to grow in intimacy with him. It's a way, but not the only way, that God might choose to heal someone today. What we see here is we're giving principles and promises, but I don't think it's James' intention to give us a spell or a formula that we're to trust in. It's an invitation to relationship with the Lord who raises up. And for some of us, if if this particular act might be a bit outside of your comfort zone, I would encourage you to think back over the various gospel accounts of Jesus healing different individuals. What do they all have in common? Well, if you think about it, not much, except for the fact that it's Jesus doing the healing. There were people from all walks of life, rich and poor, influential and anonymous, men, women, boys and girls with all types of diseases and ailments. And just think for a moment about the many different ways he healed people. Some he healed from a distance like the centurion's servant. Some touched him like the woman with the issue of blood. Some he spoke to and were healed. Others he touched. Sometimes he talked to the person. Some he talked with a servant. Some with a parent. Sometimes to a demon. Some he told to do something, like the ten lepers he directed to go and show themselves to the priest. Some cried out for him by name. Some didn't know who he was till afterwards. Sometimes he marveled at the faith of the one that he was healing. Other times, he highlighted the faith of those making the request, different from the person being ministered to. Some folks were struggling with their faith. And at least one account of someone that was directly opposing him in the moment that he was being healed, in the case of the servant whose ear Peter cut off. We also have accounts of him making mud and even spitting in the eyes of the blind, sticking his fingers in the ears of the deaf. 
To some, he spoke of forgiving their sins. And with one exorcism the disciples had trouble with, he remarked that this type only comes out through prayer. Why are there so many different ways? Have you ever thought about this? Jesus didn't seem to be following a formula or a prescription sheet from some WebMD for miracle workers reading, well, if they're blind, then spit in their eye. No, with blind, we see various ways that he healed different blind people. Was he doing different things, different ways as a way to show off? Hey, watch this one. Behind my back. Look, Ma, no hands. Was he just healing so many people that he had to change things up a bit to keep it interesting? A way of keeping his head in the game? Why would it be that he would use so many different methods and means to bring healing to different individuals? Could it be that he was relating with each individual in the way that served them best? The way that helped them trust him or see his compassion that amazed them or drew them to know and love him? An outcast or an unclean person needed to see and experience his touch. Others needed to see his authority to command away what had no cure. Some were under the weight of sin which needed to be remedied before the smaller miracle of physical healing was attended to. Friends, Jesus wants us dependent on him, not on formulas. He wants our trust in God, not in our odds. He is our healer, the sufficient one. And like back then, our ailments today are invitations to encounter him, to grow in relationship and in dependence and in love. And that's going to look different person to person and situation to situation. Sometimes when you pray, He'll make your headache go away. Sometimes he has us pray and utilize the gift of Tylenol. Sometimes it lasts and doesn't go away till others pray for you. And sometimes you need to call the elders. Sometimes all those things plus surgery and chemo don't take it away. Not because he is not able, but because he has a different agenda. Did did you notice the terminology he uses here of saving and raising up the sick one? These are words that are more often associated with our eternal salvation which isn't a denial of God's ability or willingness to heal physically, but it's a recognition that when we get to the point of desperation, of calling for the elders, the condition of our physical body alone is often not the only thing we want or need. 
prayer for. James expanded on that idea and says, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, as modern people, we know viruses and bacteria cause illnesses, but it can be that an illness is the result of a particular sin. We see this in both Old and New Testaments. In places like 1 Corinthians 11, where individuals were getting sick and dying because they were not regarding the body, they were not considering one another as they came together for the Lord's Supper. We read in, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28, let a person examine himself then, And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Of course, we see numerous places in both Old and New Testaments where sicknesses had nothing to do with a particular sin. And I want to add that when we aren't given a clear correlation of sin, we shouldn't connect dots that God hasn't connected. So, this morning there will be no declaration that COVID-19 is judgment for abortion or racial discrimination or idolizing technology? Will God hold individuals and nations to account for our sin? Absolutely. Can I say that COVID is the result of any particular sin? Well, God has not revealed that. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. If God wants to make that clear, he is more than capable of making it clear. What is absolutely clear is that all sickness, all brokenness, all death is the result of sin. It all goes back to the garden and the curse for our rebellion. But that doesn't mean that every disease or infirmity that you or I experience is God's answer to a particular sin in our lives. Where it is, God is able to make that clear. And James wants us to know. He makes sure to point out where that is the case. It will be forgiven. Even where a particular sin is not revealed, I think James is seeking to come alongside us and to give comfort, maybe in particular for that person on their sickbed, reflecting on questions and regrets, oftentimes with not much but time to be able to do so. And the reality is, in each of our hearts, the more sick we get, the more likely we are to give attention to the state of our souls. For some of us, it only takes a cold to think the end is near. 
Maybe God is using a sickness or an injury to get your attention. Not because your sin would cause that situation, but maybe he's slowing you down enough to bring you to your senses or to bring you to your knees. I want to be really clear. James doesn't presume that that's the case. And we shouldn't presume that that's the case either, not in our lives and not in the lives of those around us. But James also has it here, and it seems that we should at least be willing to ask the question. The good news is if God does bring something to our attention, James reassures us that we can receive forgiveness. So I'm not suggesting we navel gaze until determining a reason for every illness or every infirmity. If God wants to bring something to our attention, he will do it. If he makes you aware and you want to turn from it and devote yourself to him, well, James encourages us to call the elders because the pathway to grace is through humbling ourselves. We should read passages like this along with Jesus' own call to ask whatever we will in his name and he will do it as bold promises but also to be aware that they are not invitations to overstep our bounds. Matir again writes, such promises are intended to bring us with confidence into the place of prayer. They speak to us of a God who can do all things, who is so generous that he will withhold nothing from us that is good and whose ears are open to our every word. Let me read that again. They speak to us. These promises that we read in Scripture, they speak to us of a God who can do all things, who is so generous that he will withhold nothing from us that is good, and whose ears are open to our every word. But the one thing the promises do not encourage or allow is that we should come into a place of prayer and a stubborn insistence that we have got it right, that we know what's best, that our will must be done. It's why it's important for us to see in these promises the call to anoint in the name of the Lord under His purposes, set aside for what He will do or to ask whatever we will in his name according to his will. Jesus himself was the model for us as he prayed out of his distress in Gethsemane, Father, not my will, but yours be done. I want this awful cup removed, but your will is what is best. As we humble ourselves and pray, God gives us more grace. And that is His promise that we see in these verses.
as we come, he is ready to meet us. He will pour out his grace, his kindness, his love to us. He wants to draw us closer to himself. But that doesn't always mean physical healing or even relief. God's purpose, for example, for Paul's thorn in the flesh was bigger than physical healing. Producing patience and humility in the apostle were higher priorities than Paul's comfort. Now, God was faithful to provide grace sufficient to endure, and he revealed his strength in the midst of Paul's weakness, for which Paul was eternally grateful but the thorn remained James calls us in verse 16 therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed and again I'm struck because James seems Again, to intentionally be blurring the lines in these verses between physical and spiritual need. To the sick one we just read, who needed to call the elders, we have the promise of being saved and lifted up. These associations with our eternal salvation. And to the one confessing sins to others, taking this spiritual act, we have this promise of healing. It's important to note that James is not advocating for human priests that we have to go through so that our sins are forgiven or in order for us to be healed because Jesus is our high priest, the one mediator between God and man. He gives us direct access to God. We don't need to go through another. But James is calling us to bring others into the process, to humble ourselves and use the means that he has provided for our blessing and benefit. James very well could be highlighting the same type of issue Paul was that we read in 1 Corinthians 11, where sins against the body resulted in sickness within the body. And if so it would be appropriate that we would confess our sins to those we have sinned against. That is the context of our confession as we see in the New Testament. We are to confess our sins to those that we sin against so that we might be forgiven, that we might be reconciled, that we might be restored. Humbling ourselves in that case before God involves humbling ourselves before one another so that grace and healing might flow. It could also be that God, well, he wants us to live a life of dependence upon him and one another. To recognize that the life he has given us to walk out as believers is one that's to be lived in community. 
that humbling myself before God includes walking humbly before my brothers and sisters as well, realizing that God's highest aim is not my perfect physical health in this life, but the condition of my undying soul. Should we pray for the sick person? Absolutely. And I'm thrilled that God has healed different folks in our midst as we have prayed for them over the years. But let's make sure when we pray for physical needs that we are just as concerned and even more prayerful for their eternal health and vitality. Let us recognize both the privilege and responsibility we have in the role God has given us as a body, as a church family, as people that are called to live out our relationship with him in relationship with one another. I'm reminded of the paralytic whose friends lowered him through the roof of the house because it was too crowded for them to get to Jesus through the door. I find it striking. If you go back to that account, it was the friend's faith that Luke says Jesus responded to. When he first declared to the man that your sins are forgiven, and then extended it to take up your mat and walk. It was those who brought him and carried him to that place that Jesus was responding to their faith. And as we come to passages like this, I've been highlighting how God wants to use our personal suffering and joy as invitations to intimacy and fellowship with him. But sometimes it's not just our personal relationship with him. He is trying to grow. But it's our corporate faith and trust in him he wants to develop. Clearly, we're separated right now. But friends, we are still a body. And as strongly as I can, I, I want to appeal in the season we are in not to permit mandated physical distancing to translate into social or, more importantly, spiritual isolating. We need one another if you aren't in a care group on a regular basis whether it's because of illness or your kids schedule or because you are new to redeeming grace I actually can't think of a better time an easier time for you to get involved and get connected is it, is it awkward to be connecting in a video chat yeah for maybe the first five minutes you realize we're all in the same boat and we start to lose some of our self-consciousness and just to be able to enjoy relating with one another in the means that God has provided for us in this season 
Barriers like distance and schedule are largely non-issues. It doesn't take 30 minutes to travel back and forth right now. You can put the kids in their own beds or occupy them in the next room and log on. If you don't know who to connect up with, write us. Write us at the church office and we'll get you linked up. It doesn't matter, friends, if you see yourself in this body as an ankle, as a nose, or a big toe. You are part of this body and we need to be relating to and praying for one another. Make no mistake, the enemy is prowling around like a hungry lion for those he might devour. God has not designed your family to be an island unto itself. He has called you to be part of a larger community and he has given you this church to be your bigger church family. If your own growth and care is not reason enough for you to take this step, please consider doing it for the sake of everyone else's health and growth and care. We are missing out on your contributions of your knowledgeable prayers on our behalf. Don't weaken the body by functionally refusing to be a part of it in this time of isolation. I don't claim any special knowledge of many of the things that God wants to do in this season. I'm sure there's a whole host in each of our lives. But I am absolutely convinced of two aims he has for us as a church, and that is that he wants us to grow closer to himself and closer to one another. James concludes the section on prayer. Second half of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. I love this conclusion to me it's, it's like the reminder that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells within us it makes my heart sore when I read these words friends we are disciples followers of Jesus members of one body and each of us Come on level ground to the foot of the cross. God listens to your prayers for the same reason that he listens to mine or to John Piper's or to the Apostle Paul's. It's because the resurrected Son of God is seated at the right hand of the Father. He makes us acceptable to God. He 
makes our prayers as incense to him. Likewise, we read in Romans 8, the Spirit helps us in our weakness because, friends, we're all weak. He helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. That's you and me according to the will of God. This is so much bigger than just you and me and what we bring to the table. And even miracle-working prophets like Elijah, according to the Scripture, were just men like us. They're men that encountered and related with a big God. Elijah's story is a huge bright spot in 1 Kings after the deliverance of Israel from from slavery in Egypt and all the the miracles God did on their journey. I I think Elijah's stories and and what God used him for are, are really some of the greatest displays of miracles in all the Old Testament. Not just praying for rain to stop and start, but being fed by the ravens sustaining the widow's flower and oil, raising the widow's dead son, having God answer his prayer to consume the sacrifice on Mount Carmel in the showdown with the prophets of Baal, fire coming from heaven at his request to show that he's the God who answers prayer. And the prophets of Baal were crying out hundreds of them and cutting themselves and had no God to listen to them. God showed himself as one who hears and one who answers when his people pray. Eventually, the end of his story that he's taken into heaven in a whirlwind by a chariot of fire. It's enough to get you some legitimate street cred to have this list of things that you've seen God do in answer to your prayers. Yet we also read immediately after fire consumes the sacrifice on Mount Carmel and he slayed the 700 prophets of Baal. He prays for the rains to come again. And he races back and beats the chariot. The very next thing we read is that Ahab, the king who was evil, gives a report to his queen Jezebel, Jezebel of the confrontation between Elijah and the prophets who Elijah just defeated and she declared, Elijah must die. What does the mighty man of God do in response? 
of the thing that we see is that he runs and he hides and he asks God to kill him. He gives up. He's discouraged and depressed and full of self-pity. He complains to God about how faithfully he has served him and how he's all alone. And what do we see? James says what we should see is ourselves. We should see a man like us. A man who God used in amazing ways but no Superman and no Savior. And at times, weak, sinful man that prayed and saw a great God answer. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working, we read. Because a powerful God is doing the work. Elijah wasn't more righteous than you or I because Elijah was not more righteous than Jesus. Jesus is our righteousness. Like Elijah, your righteousness is not based on your best behavior or discounted by your worst deeds. Your righteousness has been gifted to you by the risen Savior. We have the same nature as Elijah. But more importantly, friends, we have the same God. And he bids us to come, to relate with him through prayer and praises, in all of life. If the band could come back up. Close with this. If you're a Christian and you know it, pray to God. If you're a Christian and you know it, praise him too. If you're a Christian and you know it, pray to a big God. Because if you're a Christian and you know it, your prayers will surely show it when you realize our big God is the one pursuing you. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that you call us to come to you. Lord, draw us near wherever we are. Help us to not be held back by our own infirmities, our own weaknesses, our own sins, but to see you as the God who calls us to yourself and has done everything required to make us acceptable so that we can come, so that we can enjoy relationship with you, so that we can praise you for you are worthy. You are worthy of our praise. Help us to give it to you now.